Welcome to Texas Style Coworking. The ranch office is a neighborhood community office that delivers a warm atmosphere with a heavy dose of Southern hospitality. Located in Memorial, Katy, and Baytown, we offer private offices, conference rooms, event space, and much more. Come change things up and check us out. Remember, life is better at the ranch. Humanity is growing and connecting. Tomorrow's world needs more energy from more places. But to find our net zero future, we must overcome the natural constraints of many new energy sources. This is the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, where we look at the energy challenges of modern life and the innovators finding solutions. Join us for a low-carbon, high-energy conversation with your host, Joe Batir. This views of the host are his own and should not be viewed as those of any business, corporation, or government entity. Hello, and welcome to the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. I'm your host, Joe Batir. This is the show where we bring you low-carbon, high-energy stories for the people solving the challenges, the energy challenges of modern life. I am here today with Dan Morrison, founder of Amalgamated Sludge, LLC. Now, you'll hear a little background noise. That is because we are recording live at NAEP. If you don't know, NAEP is the North American Prospect Expo. It is where deals get done. This is our second year having a podcast pavilion. So very excited to be bringing Dan in here to the show and and talking about kind of energy transition and and new energy ideas and, and thoughts one more thing as you remember from last year we did have a sponsor last year was fifth ring this year the sponsor for the podcast pavilion is tgs with decades of experience tgs aims to provide deep insights and understanding to support society's evolving energy needs across the energy spectrum through innovation and data-driven solutions, TGS utilizes diverse data sources, including their own, to create actionable insights that enables you, the user, to make the right decisions. Check them out. The link is in the show notes, or that link is tgs.com. All right, now to get to Dan. Dan, thank you for joining me on the show today. If you would please share with me in the audience your background and an introduction to amalgamated sludge. Uh, thanks for having me, Joe, and I'll try to keep it brief. I'm old, and it would take a long time <laughs> to tell you everything, but uh, started my career as a reservoir engineer with Exxon, uh, moved through some private companies, went into the finance industry, spent 20 years doing equity research and investment banking stuff, came back into the industry just in time for a bankruptcy cycle in 2015. Um, helped a company get through that, ultimately helped sell that company, and then started looking for new projects and kind of stumbled into Bitcoin. So Amalgamated Sludge was formed um, for the purpose of acquiring some marginal gas assets for the to use for mining Bitcoin. It was, those assets were acquired with that in mind at a time when they were, there was really no competition for those kinds of gas assets. No one, gas has a spotty future in the U.S. from a commodity perspective. Got even spottier with the recent LNG uh, or actions. So uh, gas is kind of perennially cheap in the U.S. because we have such an abundance. 
and Bitcoin mining is a is a very economic use for otherwise kind of underappreciated assets. All right. Yeah. So that is exciting to to talk about and hear about and and see that progression. It's almost maybe the one thing that the audience doesn't see and appreciate from that your background being in the reservoir, reservoir engineering into the finance side and seeing what it takes to really make businesses work and happen and be profitable. All of that feeds into this being marginal gas assets that really wouldn't have a life otherwise. Correct. Now you you see this new technology in a way to utilize the technology to make something profitable. Correct. It, so it's, it's kind of mind blowing to think about. One thing before we really dive into that, where did the name Amalgamated <laughs> Sludge come from? So I said I was old. Way back in the day, probably in the early 90s, there was a, a fund that was out buying distressed energy loans and working them out, cleaning them up. And that com- that fund was called Amalgamated Sludge. Mm-hmm. And it was like, I just love the name. It's like you're, when you're taking, you know, discarded, underappreciated, damaged goods and doing something with them, um, it kind of fit for what I'm doing here. It's like I'm taking lousy assets and putting a new spin on them, and now they're valuable. So it's kind of that was the genesis. Yeah. Very Plus, cool. And I wouldn't have done it if I didn't realize how hard it is to spell amalgamated. <laughs> so it's like <laughs> I've spelled that out on the phone like a hundred times. To oh me. man, yeah. So, so to kick off, basically you're mining Bitcoin using marginal gas wells. For those that don't understand. What what is that process? And let's start off with what is that process? Yeah, so I'll go back a little bit further to start with Bitcoin. So Bitcoin is basically a, a decentralized ledger that facilitates transactions between parties, um, and that facilitation is provided by computers on the network. And because of the cryptography that's employed, it requires a lot of computer power, and that so these are very power intensive processes the computers that do that generally pull power off of the grid whatever that's one kind of obvious source but the economics are always challenging for for mining so you're always driven to the lowest cost power you can you can generate or obtain and the further you move upstream in the power supply chain, if you will, the cheaper stuff gets. Mm. So the cheapest you can get is kind of get to the source, root source of the power, in this case, natural gas. So we basically just produce the gas, use that to fuel a generator, um, which generates power to mine, to operate those those computers. The mining is kind of a little bit of a misnomer. The computer that solves or resolves a block of transactions on the network gets paid for doing that in what's called the block reward. Right now that's six and a quarter Bitcoin per block. And that happens about every 10 minutes on the network. Hmm. But the odds are kind of crappy because I'm one of millions of computers around the world doing this. Yeah, I have, I have a couple hundred computers doing this against millions around the world. So those are lousy odds when only one computer solves a block. So you join what's called a mining pool, like an office pool, and that, that improves your odds. And if your pool's big enough, the odds pretty much work out 
based on percentage that you represent of the network. So it becomes somewhat predictable, yeah. um, but it's still, it's, it's a challenging business. Okay. And so you need to find the cheapest power possible, which I guess makes sense to then go to something like generating power using natural gas to then be doing your, your calculations and your mining. Correct. And the, and so then you start looking for inexpensive sources of gas, right? And the U.S., we all see Henry Hub quoted as a common, a popular yep. benchmark. Gas, the gas physical market, how gas actually trades is very much an over-the-counter market. So I don't get to sell my gas to Henry Hub when my assets are in New Mexico. So I, I sell into that local pipeline system and I've got a gas marketing guy who almost daily picks up the phone and calls four prospective buyers and gets wow. a bid and and the gas gets traded on that basis. Mm-hmm. So so that's it's more complicated than just Henry Hub pricing. The other problem is this geographic area, there's a the price the normal price signal in a market is low prices, cut production, yeah. high prices, stimulate production. Yeah. In this instance, that market signal is broken because the production's not responding to the gas price signal, it's responding to the oil price signal. Hmm. So it's a, soci- it's a lot of the gas in the basin, not my gas specifically, but a lot of the gas in the basin is associated with oil production. Okay. So the oil guys are drilling for the oil, the gas is just kind of a nuisance byproduct, but they got to do something with it. Yeah. So they stuff it in a pipe that's already full of gas. <laughs> And it just keeps getting more full. So it's oversupplied in spite of the fact that the prices are insanely low. So it's it's a weird dynamic that's going to persist in this region for quite some time. Okay. And so that's where, I guess, the, the fact that you, the price point varies and it doesn't vary according to normal market signals. Correct. So that is where... It would make sense that if if the price is too low, that's when you mine Bitcoin. Correct. And and quite frankly, once you have you, the Bitcoin mining itself is rather capital intensive. Once you have that capital deployed, the mine or sell decision gets really simple because the equivalent price I'm realizing through mining is so much greater than the price we'll ever see in the market. It just makes more sense to mine in in my market. Just to kind of put some numbers on it, uh, with my current configuration, which are older machines, um, I realize about seven bucks, seven and a half bucks in MCF for every MCF I I consume with the generators. I generate enough Bitcoin to equivalent make about seven and a half bucks in MCF. Okay. I sold gas last weekend for sixty five cents. I still sell some gas. So, um, that, and so the gas price, local gas price would have to go over seven and a half kind of persistently for me to shut down the mine uh, and sell instead. We had that um, cold snap January, yeah. almost exactly a month ago. Prices, spot prices around the country were $20, $30 in Oklahoma. I was $8, which is still great. But it's yeah. not 20 or 30. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, we, we keep mining. Wow. 
Yeah, that is a, it's pretty wild to think about that and how the markets can vary regionally and then how it would make sense to be utilizing that at the source for a different reason. Correct. With, with that, how, how large are these mines that you specifically have and, and maybe what's the range of mines when we're talking about using, we're going to call this a, like a stranded gas or a, a non, non-economic gas resource. Right. So, and it's really kind of just gas resources in general. And these are kind of rule of thumb numbers. A 300, 300 MCF a day of gas will fuel about a megawatt of power generation. Okay. That megawatt of power generation will run about 300 ASIC miners. Those are the computers. Uh, they're very, like I said, power intensive. They were about 3,300, 3,400 watts per machine. Okay. So 300 of those get you about a megawatt. Uh, and that's going to generate in the current network environment a little over a Bitcoin a month okay. for a megawatt of deployment. Interesting. So I'm trying to run, in my side, I'm trying to run a megawatt, uh, spinning up a second generator right now. I've got capacity to do another two and a half. So okay. just kind of keep growing into my capacity. Some of the sites, and, and the technology's very scalable, up and down. Um, the economics kind of work linearly. Okay. So you can see sites that are as small as 100 kW, per tenth of a megawatt, up to you know, some of the larger sites that Crusoe has are 25, 30 megawatts, all of fueled by gas off-grid. Wow. Gas that doesn't have a pipeline connection would otherwise uh, might be flared in some cases. Okay. So, um, it's, it's uneconomic for some reason. Either yeah. lack of access to pipeline, quality of the gas. Okay. There's a lot of different reasons that the market for that gas is limited or non-existent. Yeah. And we're able to use it for, for this purpose. Okay. And on that thought, when we talk about about the, I guess... To the question, is there a is there an environmental reason or an environmental drive that brought you to this, or or what was really the 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 impetus to start going this route with? So in my instance, it wasn't. There's not a huge environmental angle, but there is one. I'll describe that in a second. For the technology more broadly, when you're taking gas that doesn't have a market, it must be flared or vented. Then that's an obvious yeah. environmental benefit. You could even in a flare, you get call it ninety percent efficiency in consumption, so that there's still some methane going out. Uh, when you burn it in a modern engine with a catalytic converter, it's very clean exhaust, so you're getting ninety-nine percent combustion plus major reduction in VOCs and NOx and all that stuff. So. Venting or flaring versus running through engines a no-brainer from an environmental perspective. In my instance, I have a market for the gas, but it's a bad market. Yeah. So there is an environmental benefit to not putting it into that pipeline distribution system because the numbers vary, but maybe as much as 15% of the gas that goes into uh, a pipeline system from the time it gets there to its ultimate use 
either for generating power at the utility, fueling a factory, whatever it's used for ultimately, you may have losses as much as 10 or 15 percent, even or higher. I've seen some numbers north of 30. Wow. So that's all emissions downstream that coming out of compressor stations and all the stuff that takes to move gas from one point to another. So there is, that's not as recognized by the environmental powers that be that do tax credits and carbon credits and that kind of stuff. But I think it ultimately probably will be. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it, it is as we talk about emissions and as, as we are getting more into emissions reporting and, and fugitive, fugitive methane losses, I think that is something that we really are starting to see. There's a lot of companies being propped up and, and starting purely for finding those emissions Correct. and those leaking spots. So that, I guess we don't, we don't really think about that as often when we talk about just the whole supply chain of electricity and of energy to run systems that the closer you can be to the generation point, the less opportunity you have for loss. Correct. And that is ultimately the, the more efficient your system is. Correct. So there should be some recognition of that along the way. It hasn't really happened yet, but I think it'll, it'll come. Yeah. Yeah. And I guess with your, with your location, correct me if I'm wrong, but these, these are maybe not your well specifically, but the wells in general, this area, they are going to be producing. And it's really just a question of, are you going to flare it or is there room in the pipeline for that gas? Because you said there's a, there's an oil market and they want to produce that oil. So this gas is going to come out of the ground and it's going to go somewhere. Correct. Yeah. And, and that's the general, in, in my particular instance, uh, I don't have oil production, unfortunately. So I, I'm just producing gas and I'm stuck selling to this market. Yeah. Uh, and it's it's either that or shut in and don't sell. Yeah. Um, and ultimately have to abandon the well. This way I get to extend the life of the well, pay those royalties and taxes to the, to the state and federal entities that collect that. Yeah. So it, it enhances the value of the underlying asset for everybody involved. Yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. So the, the, I guess one other question as we talk about this. So you're, you're targeting one up to sounded like two and a half to three megawatts. Correct. Where do you find 25 megawatts for somebody like Caruso that it makes sense to go direct to that power? Or is that a completely different idea, market strategy? Not really. It's just on a different scale, different location. That one specifically, and I'll, I'm not speaking for Caruso, as I understand it, it's in the Uinta Basin, Utah, which is pipeline constrained. They have an oil development or they have an operating partner that has an oil development, but it's bringing with it the gas. Um, they can't really get a commitment from a pipeline company to come in because it's too early stage. So the, the alternative is to use it on site for something. Hmm. And the beauty of Bitcoin mining is you're, it's kind of a phrase that gets tossed around a lot as a digital pipeline. And, you know, but you're creating a, a digital commodity that then you can move over the internet. So you don't have to have a physical connection. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's a product that you can produce at the source of production and distribute it electronically. 
Yeah. So you don't have to have a millions of dollars of pipeline infrastructure laid in. Yeah, that is, that's very interesting to think about as we look through the whole, the whole supply chain, the whole value chain and building all that out. The one thing that I've, I've been saying for a while is the idea of microgrids and globalization in a local lens. And this is one of those ideas mm -hmm. of you can develop a whole, a whole system, a whole economy and something that can interact at a global scale, but not have to bring in all of those raw materials, all of the, just every, every piece of infrastructure that you need, you just need the miners in the wells. Correct. That's very exciting. And it has, so we've just been talking about kind of my business in the US, but when you think about developing electrical supplies in developing part of the world, like Africa, um, there are Bitcoin miners that can, to do that takes a lot of capital to build either high, even hydro generating capacity or, or gas fired, whatever. Most rural areas that are outside of their national grid can't afford to put that infrastructure in. So they're living without electricity. Wow. So Bitcoin miners kind of function as an anchor tenant for a power project. So someone can afford to put in a hydro dam because there's a market there for the power yeah. that, that generates cap or generates revenue. And then the, the ancillary benefit is to the community. Now we've got a, we've got power in the neighborhood. Yeah. So it's, it's really starting to revolutionize remote parts of Africa uh, that are not connected to their national grids, never will be connected to their national grids. Yeah. And it's you know, improving standards of living and it's pretty amazing. Have you seen that from a, almost an altruistic standpoint of a company who is, they are going to come in, they're going to do their Bitcoin mining, they're going to build up this entire power project for that, and then they're gonna give away the electricity? I don't know if they give it away, but it's really cheap. Um, there's a, it, the company's called Gridless. Okay. And that's their business model. I mean, they go to, and they employ local population to operate and maintain the mining uh, infrastructure. And side benefit of that is that they built a power plant that, that powers the local economy. Yeah, that's very exciting. I need to get them on the podcast to talk, yeah, I can, talk I, through all that. I can connect you. Awesome, sounds good. So what's next for Amalgamated Sludge? So we continue to expand on our current site and I keep looking for new sites. Um, I like this concept of taking distressed assets and then putting them, creating or adding value by putting a new market in place for them. Uh, in the last year, the, a lot of gas assets haven't trade, traded because it was, 22 was an anomaly. We had, um, Coming off of COVID, the drilling programs hadn't really picked back up, but demand had. Europe was freezing, and they were doing their, you know, bad decisions about energy supplies. So LNG prices were up, and it was a really strong year for gas prices. But that was an aberration. So yeah. reality returned in 23 with low prices. But it takes time for the market uh, to kind of come to grips with that and say, okay, 
22 was great, but that was an anomaly. Now we're stuck with this stuff. We need to sell it or do something with it. Yeah. So that's, you're seeing increased interest here at NAPE even, or especially in guys with under underperforming gas assets that are disadvantaged for whatever economic reason. Starting to evaluate Bitcoin options as a, a different market for the gas. Oh, okay. Now with, with your setup, are you strictly interested in buying assets and doing everything yourself? Or is there any type of market where you would be JV operator for the Bitcoin or operator for the well and, and sharing out the Bitcoin? Kind of all of the above, actually. And I've got you know conversations going on with a couple of producers that see the potential but don't understand the Bitcoin side of it. And it's really not that hard, but there are some hard knocks and the learning curve can be a little treacherous. So I can come in and help them deploy a Bitcoin mining operation. And we've got structures where they can either fund it themselves or I'll raise capital to fund the Bitcoin mining and they don't have to put any capital to work. We can do just a simple gas purchase. Sometimes that's more preferable or we can do a little more elaborate joint venture where they actually have equity in the mining operation too. Okay. There's a lot of different ways to skin the cap. Yeah. Very exciting. Well, I think that is a, a good spot to stop with the questions. If you're with those questions, now I'd like to get into the final questions. These are the questions I ask all of my guests. It looks like things are wrapping up here. So we've got some time before we before we go on to the, on to the dinner happy hours. The first question I've got what is a favorite book of yours that you would recommend? I'm going to give you a Bitcoin book. Yes. Um, and I may get the title wrong. It just came out, Gradually Then Suddenly, by Parker Lewis. Parker's uh, one of the kind of big big brains in Bitcoin. And it's, I've, I haven't, you know, honestly, I haven't read it myself yet. <laughs> it just came out. Um, but knowing Parker and having read, this is kind of a, compilation of essays he's done that have been more than just compiled but re redone in book form but known his writing and thinking over the last several years it, it's going to be a comprehensive view of kind of the use case of bitcoin and what it means for people going forward all right and it's it's pretty compelling yeah if you haven't if anyone hasn't studied bitcoin and just think about it as a funny internet magic money you need to spend a little bit more time. Yeah, actually, I I totally blanked. We're gonna we're gonna flip the script here. I do have one more question. Uh -oh. This I just heard about this new thing, the inscriptions right. that you can now start adding to the Bitcoin Bitcoin uh, blocks. Do you think, or or where do you see that going? Is there a potential? Because there's there's been talk about trying to make, trying to make Bitcoin green, trying to, to give as part of the ledger a a, almost somehow saying, this is green, this one coming from somewhere else, and giving this um, this uh, provenance to the Bitcoin of saying giving some information to it. Do you see the inscriptions as as potentially something in somewhere where you can now, you can say this one was mined by amalgamated sludge at this location. 
using this energy? Potentially. I, I haven't really thought about that use of inscriptions, but it does bring up the broader point that the network has more utility than just facilitating transactions. Yeah. So let's say you wanted to store some documents, but you don't have your own 256-bit encryption network that's secured by gigawatts of energy. Yeah. You can inscribe a document onto a, hmm. onto the network and and have it stored immutably forever. So there's there's other use cases that are going to come up for the network that we haven't really even um, thought about yet. But I hadn't thought about stamping a seal of approval on Bitcoin as it's produced. Um, possible. I, you may see some people do that. I don't know. I'd, yeah, I'll be curious to see because it. I feel like there is that discussion that people want to have about about the about the the environmental impact of Bitcoin. Right. And a that's, lot. That's and I'm not extremely well versed on that. The the pushback I would give on how energy intensive it is is it generally goes for the cheapest source of energy. Yeah. So it's going to go for energy that's stranded, underutilized, otherwise wasted. And it, and the, the analogy or the, the use I described in Africa actually is happening here. Hmm. So sort of oddly, we build these wind farms and solar farms because yeah. they're green and everyone thinks they're fun but they're in the middle of freaking nowhere. Yeah. Because that's where the wind and the sun and the acreage is. So there's no market out there yeah. for that power. So power prices in those regions go negative. So Bitcoin miners are out there sub supporting that power that generation ecosystem Yeah. because they need someone to offtake the power. Yeah. So that, that kind of justifies that big solar and wind buildup in the middle of nowhere. You have to have someone out there to use the, the power to justify all that construction and yeah. mining can fill, fill that role. Yeah. So it's, yeah. It's, um, it's, it is energy intensive when you compare it to other in industries. It's probably not that much compared to how much energy we use in gold. Yeah. How much energy does the banking system consume? Um, I mean, just running yeah. all the branches and all yeah, that stuff. Yeah, that's, that's a really good point. Because we think about, we always compare it to something like, oh, look how much energy we spend on building building and, and making steel or how much we use on transportation. And, and that's always where people want to go. But what is Bitcoin doing? Where is it actually, where is it going to be in in society, the banking system? And what are we doing in the banking system today is a really good, really good point. And I, I wonder, for every dollar that goes from my pocket to it's wherever the final stage is, if it's digital, there's never really a final stage. But how how much energy is being used to move that dollar from my bank account to the mortgage or to the electric company or wherever it's going? It's, and I should have polished up the numbers, but the cost of running the Bitcoin network is pretty visible. 
because it's the the value of the block rewards, right? Yeah. That's what gets paid to the network to run it. Yeah. So that's kind of the gross cost. Um, I want to. Uh, I'll, I'll be wrong on the numbers, but <laughs> it's something like ninety billion dollars a year. Wow. Okay. Which is a big number. Yeah. When you look at J.P. Morgan, and again, it's fact checking on this. <laughs> I think their operating costs to run J.P. Morgan is on the order of fifty billion dollars. Okay. So that's one bank. One bank. One of the mega banks, but just one of them. Yeah. So throw in B of A, Wells, all the other big guys, and go international. Yeah. The, the cost of running the whole global banking system is orders of magnitude above what it costs to run the Bitcoin network. Yeah. It's, that costs people and other stuff, yeah. but it, it does include energy. Yeah. So it's, it's kind of a... Um, it's a thought experiment. It's a thought experiment. We really need to go through as we think about... And, and at the core, you have to say... Is Bitcoin worth all this effort? Right? Yeah. What does it do to society? Um, if you go to my Twitter handle, I have pinned uh, at Sludge LLC. I have pinned a uh, link to a video that was done by I think Alex Gladstein. Okay. Kind of illustrating the use of Bitcoin in West Africa. Yes. And to summarize it, West Africa. There's a group of nations that operate under a West African franc called the CIFA franc that France can just devalue willy-nilly when they feel like it. And it just crushes their economy. So they're kept in a perpetual state of your wake up one morning, your currency value has been cut in half. Wow. And Bitcoin resolves that. Yeah. And I would argue the same thing's kind of happening in the U.S., it's the boiling frog, though, right? Yeah. So the West Africans have been thrown in the boiling pot. Yeah. They, they know it instantly. They, they realize, yeah. Here, that heat's getting turned up very gradually. And the frog doesn't really jump out of the water because you don't realize it. Yeah. It's just getting a little warmer, a little warmer. Yeah. So I, it's not an unreasonable comparison to make just on a different time scale yeah. of what we see in other developing economies that have their currencies wiped out. Yeah. It's happened in South America and probably happening again now. It's kind of happening in the U.S., but it's just a lot slower and we, yeah. don't, we don't feel it as, huh. as acutely. Yeah. But it may get acute. Yeah. Very interesting. Very some something to think about and, and really, really important to, to make a concerted effort to Understand it to understand these understand these ideas and thoughts and and how it may impact us as a society as a as a nation and where we're going with it. Yeah, anyone that runs off and condemns it on the energy use needs to spend some time understanding the 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 value in the use case. Yeah, because it's been demonstrated more so in other places, kind of ironically. Yeah, than yeah. here, but huh. but they need it more. Yep, absolutely. Okay, the other. Going back to those final questions, how do we get to net zero? We don't. I'm, I'm pretty sure that's that's a, uh, I won't say pipe dream, but a aspirational goal that's just unachievable. Hmm. Or you kill a few billion people. Hmm. That'll do it. Yeah. The, the obvious answer to... Uh, 
to decreasing to decarbonizing is is a a a the next large scale mass extinction, which is going to be which would would have to be us. Correct. And it's it's sad to think about because it like and, and I'm not on board with that. Yeah, like it's not something to it's not something we should actively seek to do. Correct. But Ma- mass murder is bad. Yes. Yeah. And it. Yeah. But so moving on. So, so I think, and this is this is counter to the to the normal narrative. The way you get to reduced emissions is through prosperity. Mm. The U.S., we emit a lot, but on a per capita basis, per GDP basis, we've made more strides than anyone else on the planet. Yep. And that's because we're so prosperous. And we use natural gas. We, the increased use of natural gas has directly driven the drop in our emissions mm. over the last 10 years. So it's a little, you kind of got to run faster to get to your destination yeah. rather than going slow and thinking by underinvesting. Yeah. And you keep people in poverty, like our African friends we were talking about a minute ago. That electrification, now they're not burning wood. Yeah. They're not burning dung. And they develop a microeconomy. Hmm. Prosperity improves everything. And we should be, but that takes energy. Yeah. But the more prosperous we are, the more smart we are using energy, the, the, the better the emission profile of the planet will get. Yeah. Let's take China, for example. They're building coal plants one a week. Why is that? Because coal's cheap. Yeah. If and they, they could, need power. And they need power. If they could afford to, to use natural gas and import LNG, they would be much cleaner. Yeah. So it's all gets back to prosperity. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you have to, yep. it's a it's a big machine that has to spin all the way up to get the full benefit of it. Yeah. Otherwise, you're going to have, um, you're going to penalize the U.S., which is one of the cleaner yeah. operating places on the planet. But then you're still going to have the same problem of, of more people needing power and they're going to find the cheap quote unquote dirty power that they that they can get online immediately today ready exactly yeah very interesting well the the last question now you actually get to ask me a question oh good (laughs) uh geothermal so how real is geothermal how how much can we scale that yeah I I think it can go to the moon. It can be exponential. But time frame is is really the big question there. I I do sincerely believe and promote that geothermal is going to be the baseload for more or less everything. It can supply the heating, it can also supply cooling. It can be and the technology behind geothermal and using the subsurface and geothermal infrastructure can be both energy storage and building out thermal energy district heating and cooling networks. And that's not even getting to the 
electricity part. Right. Once we start talking about electricity and talk about energy storage for electricity, and and that's like thermal energy storage in the subsurface, and then also EGS, which is engineered geothermal systems, very similar. You drill drill wells, either vertical or horizontal, probably horizontal. Then you're going to stimulate those wells, basically creating fractures in the subsurface. It, all of these things are going to make it so that you can truly have geothermal everywhere and you can have it impacting both decreasing the amount of power we need through the heating and cooling aspect and then also providing a, a, an abundant, reliable, resilient power source. I, I, I struggled there at the end because I want to say low cost. Right. It's... It's, it is going to be cost effective. That's one of those unpopular opinions that I have that I, that I don't talk about too often, but in a, in a low carbon society, I think all prices are going to be higher. And I don't know how much higher, but that is something that society as a whole or the majority has to decide and say, yes, we're willing to do this. And, and then we have to, we have to be willing to do that. But, it, but you can still right now make geothermal economic, economic meaning it can take off some of the most expensive pieces of power. Mm-hmm. It can be cost competitive with offshore wind. And especially as we start talking about adding in carbon taxes, then geothermal starts to starts to beat a lot of the a lot of the all, all of the coal and then in some cases natural gas as well right okay so i think geothermal is is going to be a major player i'm always fascinated by the fact that you drill a well so the problem with the oil and gas guys and i'm an oil and gas guy you drill a well it's got a finite life and it's going to deplete and yeah ultimately you plug it uh Geothermal, we should gotta drill a well. Yeah. So we're gonna be drilling some wells and fracking them, apparently. Yeah. But <laughs> then, then that Yale's well is gonna have utility that yeah, you know, lasts a lot longer than yeah. conventional. And and traditional geothermal, there are wells that have been and there are systems that have been producing for for over in the US over fifty years. Lardarello, the the oldest geothermal system power plant, where we've been using it for electricity. First wells went online, generate electricity, 1904. And we are still generating electricity from Lardarello. And probably, I would assume they're still trying to find ways to expand that electricity production. Right. So it is crazy to think about. It's kind of like every single system, if you treat it right, can become the equivalent of production lifetime of like East Texas oil field. And I'll, I'll make one more final thought on the whole decarbonization thing. Um, and I won't get into my debate about <laughs> carbon having an effect on the environment or atmosphere. <laughs> yeah. But the, the place where we best spend our efforts and our capital is on efficiency and not on the production side. Because if you get more efficient, you'll get 
you'll use less and the production will take care of itself. Yeah. And my, my best example is hybrid vehicles. So I was an early hybrid driver. Okay. I'm an oil and gas guy. I was doing equity research and I bought a Prius in 2002. Um, took the proceeds of a deal I had done and bought a Prius. So okay. I got a lot of flack from my oil and gas <laughs> brethren. But it's the most efficient car or the efficient way to move cars around. EVs are super cool. I own an EV now. I have a Fiat 500E. All right. It's fun. But when you do the full power chain conversation of we delivered gas to a power plant or coal, and we can argue about wind and solar, but um, and you generate that power and you run it down a, pi- a transmission line, goes through several voltage changes. There's losses all through that system. And when you go all the way back to even just to the power plant, the efficiency of EVs is kind of on par with modern in- internal combustion engines. Okay. You're really kind of in the 35 mile okay. per gallon range. Hybrids are much better than that. Yeah. And from an emissions perspective, the hybrid is more efficient at low speeds yeah. in a city, which is where you're really concerned about it, yeah. than, than an internal combustion engine. So it's really the best of both worlds and the, the market just kind of skipped over hybrids and went straight to EVs. Yeah. And now you're seeing that kind of come back. You know, Toyota's been running the hybrid technology yeah. longer than anybody and more and better than anybody, quite frankly. Yeah. Yeah. And you're seeing EV demand drop, hybrid demand. So the market the market figures this stuff out. Yeah. Um, I'm a market free market guy. And put it out there, the the market will figure stuff out rather yeah. than putting your thumb on the scale yeah. with regulations yeah. and incentives that financial incentives that aren't really yeah. market driven. Yeah, very interesting stuff. And I, I do want to ask you a question. We will, I'm going to ask you about the new the new uh, hybrid setup. It's more akin to fuel cells, really. But I want to ask you about that. Not on the show. We are going to take this. We're going to take this to the happy hour. The So, Dan, thank you so much for joining me oh, on the show me, today. That's great catching up. Yeah, absolutely. Before we sign off, is there anything else you want to say? No, I think I've uh, said too much. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Well, thank you everybody for joining us on this episode of the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast. Please remember to like, comment, share, share this with all your friends so that way everybody gets to hear these fun stories. We are going to cut that, that ending short. Just remember, until next time, remember to keep it low carbon and high energy. Join us again next week for another low-carbon, high-energy story on the Energy Transition Solutions Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at OGGN.com.